Well, as Pastor Rich said, uh, a number of our men, our pastors, are down in Florida this weekend at the TES graduation. And if you're new to our church, TES stands for the Expositors Seminary. And it's the way that we equip men um, that the Lord is raising up among us. It's the way that we equip them for ministry, pastoral ministry, missions. It's a multi-site model. And we partner with 11 other churches around the United States. And that's why their graduation isn't here, but it's in Florida, because it's all, all 12 campuses come together and um, graduate that class of students, that cohort. <clears throat> and just kind of reflecting for a minute, it's hard to believe that there are now 13 graduates from our Timberlake campus alone and nine current students. There are several more that are applying this summer, and the Lord has been faithful to answer our prayers uh, to raise up men. He's been slowly but steadily raising up these laborers for His harvest as we've asked Him to. But it's not just laborers that the Lord's been raising up, uh, as we realize. These men are just part of the overall growth of our church, and especially over the last few years. We've given ourselves to simply trying to honor Christ in His Word, uh, just do what He's commanded us, heads down, trying to be faithful trying to shepherd the saints to the best of our ability. And the Lord's been kind in His mercy to, to increase us slowly. More and more people are coming under the influence of Christ and His Word. More people are experiencing a healthy church, and many in my demographic and college and career for the first time. They hit this place and they say, we've never experienced anything like this. Over the last few years, we've felt those growing pains, haven't we? We've had to go to two services. Um, our children's classrooms are bulging, kind of tight. Your Sunday school classes, adult Sunday school classes, some of them have, you know, losing elbow, you know, elbow room only in some of those classes, and parking is filling up, and these are all tremendous problems, you know, in quotes, to have, and they're things that our elders are, are thinking through and trying to work through right now, and but my point now is just it's, it's clear that the Lord of His church is, is causing growth here at TBC to his praise. There's growth in membership, growth in men training for ministry. And that's because he, the Lord, more than anyone else, he wants his mission to continue. And he's going to see to it that planting churches, shepherding those churches to maturity continues. And for us, whatever, whatever part the Lord calls us to play at Timberlake, we want to be continually ready. We want to be ready specifically, you can say a lot of ways, but specifically with generous hearts, as you can see on the screen. Because the day's coming that those men that we're training are no longer going to be in the pipeline. They are going, we're going to need to send them out. And one day... We're going to max out our facilities here if the trend continues, if the Lord continues to add to our midst. And we're going to need to take some kind of next steps. And one way that we can continue to prepare is by cultivating generous hearts. Hearts that are eager and ready to sacrifice for the sake of Christ's mission. But how do we do that? How do we cultivate generous 
hearts? How do we cultivate hearts that are ready to live with an open hand? Well, sometimes we're tempted to think that we'll be more generous when we have more what? Money, right? When the surplus increases. Uh, and certainly that's true, right? You can, you can be, you have more to give when there is more surplus to give. But sometimes we find our hearts, I know my heart saying things like, well, well once we get out of this recession, you know, I'm going to be in a better position to give. Once the markets stabilize a bit, right, and, and they stop penduluming back and forth, I'll feel better about being a bit more generous. Or We might have the, that fear of, well, if I give now and inflation continues, what if I need that later, right? What if I... What if it ends up, something ends up happening in the future where I need those resources? Now, these are all legitimate questions. Questions we have to think through and, and answer wisely. And I'm not saying they're unimportant. But we often fall prey to thinking that we can't be generous until, you know, fill in the blank, economy stabilizes or unless I'm wealthy. But according to Scripture... Being generous is not about how much you have, but it's about what you know. In other words, biblical generosity is rooted in what you believe. It's motivated by the truth, by Scripture. And we're going to look at a church this morning that sort of defies all odds, right? And they exemplify this generosity for us. The Philippian church was a generous church, but they were not wealthy. In fact, most of the members in this congregation were poor. But in Philippians 4, we learned that when when the Philippians had heard that Paul was in prison in Rome, he was suffering, they took up an incredibly generous donation They gave it to one of their leaders named Epaphroditus. That leader traveled from Philippi all the way across the Roman Empire, risked his life, got sick, almost died in order to get that money to Paul. It was a lot of money from a poor church, and it overwhelmed the apostle. And the point being, this is a generous church. And what I want to key in on this morning is, in particular, is what motivated them. What truth was burning in their hearts that caused this poor church to live with an open hand? And thankfully for us, Paul gives some profound insights about giving. Paul wants to make sure that the Philippians see the spiritual significance of the gift that they just gave. They met his physical needs, yes. And he rejoices over their care for him and their love that they expressed. But he wants them to see that their giving is accomplishing so much more than simply meeting his needs. Laced throughout these verses are some incredible insights, profound truths that are going to encourage us in our giving. They're going to also motivate us to become more generous as we have opportunity today. Even in the midst of inflation and what feels like unstable economic times. 
And finally, these truths, as they resonate in our minds and our hearts, are going to equip us to be ready for whatever the Lord might call us to in the coming days. So if you're not already there, you can turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. And like I said, laced throughout this passage are, we're going to highlight four motivations. Probably more uh, that we could draw out, but for our purposes this morning, we're just going to look at four motivations. These insights that Paul draws out about the spiritual significance of our gifts that we give that will motivate us to be generous. And if we're going to be consistently generous, one of the first things we see, at least in our passage, is that our giving really does extend Christ's mission in the world. And we have to understand this. This is really the, 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 the foundational building block of generous giving in this passage. That's where Paul starts. Generous giving extends Christ's mission. Look with me in verse 14. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel... When I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. And even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. So generous giving, we see that it extends Christ's mission. And for the sake of time this morning, we're dropping right into the middle of what's actually one long paragraph that began back in verse 10. And this paragraph is Paul's kind of ending the letter where he began the letter. It's all about Paul's gratitude. He's expressing gratitude for this gift that they've given him. How they met his needs. But he's doing more than just expressing his gratitude to God for their their generosity. He's doing more than that. He wants to help these Philippians see that when they gave to meet his needs in prison, they weren't just meeting his needs. They were actually joining him in partnership. They were partnering with him in his ministry, just like they had done in the past, so they were doing again. They were helping him stay alive in prison so that he could continue proclaiming the gospel, like he was doing with the Praetorian Guard. They were chained to him at all times. The gospel was permeating Roman prison. And as that happened, people were emboldened in Rome. The church in Rome was emboldened as they heard about the boldness of Paul, and they continued to evangelize. And guess what happened? The gospel spread throughout Rome. So as they met his need, he, Paul wants them to make sure that they understand that they are partnering. He calls it sharing. In verse 14, it was kind of you to share with me, or literally partnering in his affliction. When this church took up the collection, Paul says they didn't just alleviate his suffering. They actually became ministry partners with him yet again. And I say yet again because this wasn't the first time they had partnered with Paul to extend its mission. In verse 15, Paul gets nostalgic, probably a little teary-eyed, as he remembers their history of supporting him, of partnering with him to extend Christ's mission. And he lets them know that he hasn't forgotten. Look with me again in verse 15. 
He says, and you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. From their very first days as a church, they were involved in supporting his mission. That's astounding for a little church plan. They entered into partnership, he says, in the beginning of the gospel when I left Macedonia. If you were to go over to Acts 16, you would see where this church started and how it started. And you'd see that generosity was there from day one in this congregation. Lydia was the first convert, and the day she came to faith, what did she do? She opened her home, right, for Paul's team. That's generosity, 101. She opened her home as a base of operations for Paul's evangelism team, and it later became, at the end of chapter 16, we see that it became the church building. It was where the church was gathering. And that's generosity. And then later, after he left that region, Paul says that they sent him off with, with gifts to continue to proclaim the gospel. They sent him off with more resources. Generosity continued from this little, poor church. And in fact, Paul says they were the only church, the only church, to partner with the Apostle Paul in giving and receiving. He says, No church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Isn't that the way the Lord works? He takes this like super impoverished little church and the greatest missionary that has ever lived and says, Okay, you're going to get one sending church and it's going to be the support church in Philippi. You know, um, I know the other ministries supported Paul, but in this, in this case, he's drawing this out that in this time, they were the only ones supporting him. And what a lifeline. Literally, Paul's only supporting church. He mentions how they had supported him at several points during his tenure, even at Thessalonica. And their giving met his practical needs, yes, but that enabled him to do something more significant. It enabled him to continue preaching the gospel free of charge, he says. In fact, in in another one of his letters, in 2 Corinthians, listen to what he tells the Corinthians about the generosity of the Philippian believers, these Macedonian believers. He says, look at this, Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel to you free of charge? Listen to this language. I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and I was in need, I did not burden anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia, that's the Philippians, they supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you, talking about the Corinthians, in any way. The Philippians' giving then extended the mission in Corinth by meeting Paul's needs. So when it comes to cultivating a generous heart, we've got to realize that our giving really does extend Christ's mission on earth, too. God will use your little gift, no matter how large or small, in some way, to either bring His elect to faith in Christ or build up His elect to full maturity. And when that sinks in, we will be proactive in finding ways to give, even if it's a little. And so let me try to connect the dots a little bit more for you and show you how giving even a little bit to this church's budget helps extend the mission. 
typically people sometimes think of giving to the church budget, you know, as, as just like just giving to keep the lights on, you know, or I'm just kind of paying my dues to, to come to this church. But do you realize that even in something like that, let's just let's take that as an example, keeping the lights on, right, paying the utility bills, that you become partners, to use Paul's language, partners with Pastor Brian as he preaches week in and week out from this very pulpit. When you help pay utilities, you are ensuring that we have a building which facilitates people to come and hear the Word of God. As people hear God's life-giving Word, guess what happens? The Spirit regenerates people and He builds up His saints. Those of you who have given generously over the years and faithfully over the years are literally partners with Pastor Brian in the proclamation of the Gospel in his ministry of preaching by helping pay those utilities. So even keeping the lights on extends the mission of Christ. But your giving does so much more than simply keep the lights on. When you give, you help people right here at TBC. You meet needs right here. Meals are provided. Bills are paid. So much more for our membership when they're in need. Your giving also enables the paid pastors to do so much more ministry. And you guys are generous to us. Do you realize that that your giving frees up a minimum of 250 hours per week for direct shepherding? for direct equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for things like diligently studying, for counseling, for evangelism, mentoring, training, writing, planning. That extends the mission of Christ. You literally partner with us in that ministry. And that's just the mission right here in Lynchburg. We haven't even talked about beyond, right, and how your giving contributes to that as you give to the church budget. You also support the training of those future pastors that we talked about in the opening, those future missionaries. Do you realize that when you give, you're helping fund the training of more evangelists and shepherds to be sent to the nations? And not just training, but the launching of these, fo- the, these men and the sustaining of these mission endeavors as well. And so, when it comes to cultivating generosity, we have to remember when we see that deduction come on our online banking that Christ is using that deduction to extend His mission on earth. More people will come to faith in Christ as we give. More churches will be planted. More saints will be matured as you contribute. And when that sinks in, that will motivate your generosity like it did for the Philippians here. Now, I know none of you are thinking this, but lest one person out there is tempted to think, okay, paid pastor, I know what's going on here. You're, you know, you're teaching on giving to increase the bottom line, right? And and I know none of you are thinking that because you guys are generous and you, you support us very well. But there's something else that's motivating Paul and and me as I'm preaching his words here. Something we've learned is that giving is not just good for the mission. It is. 
but it's actually good for the giver. In other words, generosity benefits you, and that is our second motivation. It increases eternal reward. If we want to cultivate generous hearts, especially in the midst of difficult circumstances that we're in with inflation and a number of those things, if we want to be consistently generous with our stuff, we've got to know that we are not losing when we give it away. We are investing in something better. Look at what Paul says here in verse 17. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Since Paul just spent time affirming how generous they had been to him, he wants to make sure this affirmation isn't taken the wrong way. This is astounding. He's saying, I'm not pandering after your gifts as I affirm you. If we were tracking this passage, we would see that Paul, he just finished telling us that he's content in in abundance, and he's content with nothing. He's not seeking, he's not pandering after these gifts. That's not what he's ultimately after. He's not affirming them so they will give more to him personally. In fact, he goes on to say in this passage, he's fully provided for. He doesn't want this poor church continuing to give to him. He's like, listen, I'm... I'm, you, you, you did it. Like, you, you, you supported me. I'm good. I appreciate it. So what is, he, what is he after? What is motivating this apostle? Paul tells us what he is seeking. He says he is seeking the fruit which increases to their account. Now, we have to understand this because this is full of motivation for us. Paul's after what he describes here as fruit. So what is that? Well, I think in this context, he's talking about what the Lord produces through his own ministry, Paul's own ministry, the fruit of conversions and spiritual growth of the saints. Where am I getting that from? Well, earlier in this letter, when Paul was going back and forth about whether he wanted to die and be with Christ or stay here, that was back in chapter 1, he acknowledged kind of in, in that chapter that if he sticks around, means he keeps, keeps on living, that's going to mean what? It's going to be fruitful labor for him, is what he says. Verse 22 of chapter 1. And that fruitful labor, yeah, no doubt, inc- included in conversions in his mind, but specifically in this context, he says it includes the growth of the Philippians. He says it, it's, it's a, it's, this fruit is their progress and joy in the faith. Verse 25. So you can think of fruit, when we think about this idea of fruit, you can think of it as both conversions and maturity, growing to maturity, the growth of God's people, the transformation of of the church. That's what Paul's after. But here's the twist. He says he's after the fruit that increases not to his account, but to the Philippians' account. Here's what I think he's saying. Because the Philippians had given and they had become partners with Paul in his ministry, 
that means that the fruit that results from his ministry is shared fruit. It's fruit that they too will be rewarded for. And church, that is a glorious insight. This is a deep motivation to be generous. When we get involved, when we give any spiritual fruit that accrues through the ministries of those we support, any pastor, any missionary, their fruit is also connected to you. To your account. You're a co-laborer beside those pastors, missionaries, because your money or your home or your car was a means the Lord used in their hands to produce fruit. And so on that final day, at the return of Christ, you will be rewarded. You'll be rewarded alongside someone like a missionary we support, like just picking one out of the air, Matt Johnston who's in Italy, planting churches. We get updates periodically about Matt and what he's doing, but we, we don't know. I mean, we don't, we don't. But fruit's accruing to you because we support the Johnstons in Italy. And think about how that impacts what I said at the beginning with all these men that are coming through and we're training and we're able to send to the nations. The next few years, those eight men in counting currently in training, wherever they end up going, that fruit that accrues in their ministry will accrue to your account at some level because your giving went to support them. So our sacrificial giving, if we're seeing it through scriptural eyes, is really not a sacrifice. It's an investment. And in fact, it's not just sort of one investment among many that we could make. It is the very best investment we could make with our surplus. Jesus says that when we use our earthly resources for His eternal kingdom, when we, quote, give our resources away, humanly speaking, He says we're not losing them. We're actually, He says, providing ourselves with money bags that do not grow old. We're providing for ourselves Treasure in heaven. Treasure that does not fail with a stock market crash. Treasure that cannot be stolen or destroyed. It is an eternally protected investment in things that are eternal. An investment that has an incredible, secure, guaranteed ROI. The fruit transcends this age and it carries over into the new creation where we will enjoy it forever. That's Paul's perspective. Now, if you're in the college ministry, bear with me. I say this analogy all the time, but I find it very helpful. You're playing a game of Monopoly, and you're kind of playing the game, you're into it, trading, you're buying stuff with your Monopoly money, and somebody came along to you and said, hey, would you like to use that Monopoly money for a real house? I didn't know it was possible. Yeah, you can. See that house over there? You know, you could, you, if, if you don't buy those little cheap plastic houses, you could actually invest that Monopoly green yellow money into that real, real house over there. That would change the way you play the game, wouldn't it? You'd have a little less invested in the Monopoly game that's going to close up in about four hours or however long it takes you to play Monopoly. 
You know, it, close up. The game is over. Money is done. That's our life. That game's going to close. That box is going to be closed. And our chance for the eternal investment is over. And if that perspective sinks in, that your giving is investing, that you are increasing eternal reward for yourself, when you give in faith, this will fuel your generosity, won't it? It's so tempting, I know, for me to think that I'm losing this money when I give it away. Or at the very least, you know, somebody else is benefiting from it, which is great, it's encouraging, but, you know, I'm not. Um, but to know that even I will benefit one day, and in a much more profound way than I would benefit right now if I used it now. That is massively incentivizing. And it was this very perspective that motivated George Mueller. Have you heard of him? Motivated this guy. You typically don't think of him as this like crazy giver. But George Mueller, listen to this. This motivated him to give and to live minimally so that he had more to invest at his death, listen to some stats. At his death, he had, at that time, $850, which in our day, that's $62,000, roughly, to his name. But he had given away, get, get this, $180,000, which today is $13 million. How does that happen? Because he believed that. Now, as motivating as this is to, to think of how we can be more generous, there, there's more in this passage. Paul also wants us to make sure that we understand that as we give generously, this pleases the Lord. This pleases the Lord. Paul wants the Philippians to know that their gift has completely taken care of his needs, yes, that he's fully provided for, yes. But even here, he wants them to see that their gift is something more significant than simply meeting his need. It is a form of worship to God. He frames up their financial gift in worship categories in the very sacrificial language of the Old Testament. And he says it's a sacrifice that God delights in. Look with me in verse 18. He says, I've received full payment and more. I am well supplied. Reading between the lines? Don't give me any more. You know. Having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering. Listen to this language. He's reframing it for them. It's a gift, yes, but it's a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Now, to help us get our bearings a little bit on what Paul's doing here, let's take a second and revisit the sacrifices in the Old Testament. Under the Old Covenant, the sacrificial system was repetitive and provided a provisional atonement for Israel's sins against the covenant. That was their purpose. Year after year, the priests would offer these sacrifices and God would atone for the sins of the people. But ultimately, the sacrifices could never truly cleanse the people's hearts, meaning they weren't transformative. There wasn't a lasting transformation that happened through this, this sacrificial system. It pointed, God intended it to point to something different. 
This whole system pointed to the need for a greater and more climactic sacrifice. One that would fully and finally forgive sins and provide transforming power. And this is what Christ accomplished. And that's why Paul can use this exact phrase that we see here in chapter 4. He can use this same phrase, the fragrant offering, over in Ephesians 5 about Jesus. And he says, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So in the metaphor, God smelled the offering of Christ and God was satisfied in him. He fully delighted in his son and his death on the cross fully accomplished our forgiveness. And it was this final and transformative sacrifice that we needed. And now God is pleased with us because he's pleased with his son. But here in Philippians 4, Paul says it's our giving that pleases God. It's our generosity. It's the the sweet-smelling sacrifice. And that's because if we bring these ideas together, in Christ, our acts of obedience are now acceptable to the Father because we are obeying in Christ and from faith, right? We're not obeying to earn His favor. These are not filthy rags, right? These are good works that God has prepared beforehand for us to walk in, that He is pleased with. And when it comes to generous generous giving, Paul wants to make sure that we understand that God is delighted when we share. That's not a hard concept to get your mind around. You know, any parent of young children, uh, there's a tremendous joy when those children, when you overhear those children kind of spontaneously sharing in the next room. It's rare, but there's a joy there. And our Lord loves it too. It smells sweet to Him as we love like Christ has loved us. As we're generous the way that Christ has been generous with us. And sometimes I think we're tempted to think that God is just constantly disappointed with us. He's just frustrated with us that we can never do anything right because we're so sinful. Our motives are always mixed, right? You know your heart. I know mine. But according to what Paul says here, that's not the case. Not in the least. Is God grieved by our sin? Yes. But he is also deeply delighted in our attempts to obey. When you attempt to be generous, when you have that person over, you give that little bit of your paycheck to the church, that delights the Father. Are you perfect? No. Are your motives perfect? No, not always. But but Christ is perfect. His motives are pure. And you're clothed in His righteousness. So in Christ, even our attempts at obedience are a delight to the Father. So let that anticipation of His smile motivate the generosity. Now, we've covered a lot so far, but there's still one question that's probably been lingering in your minds. And you're thinking, all right, is this guy tone deaf? Like, we are in a recession. Um, And... We're, the inflation is hitting hard. Food is more expensive than it's ever been. What about us? Right? What if we need something in the future? What if something unforeseen happens and I need some extra that I gave to missions last week? Those are relevant questions, like I said. But often what hinders us from being generous when we have surplus to give 
is the sneaking impulse to hoard it out of fear. To be stingy because we've got to take care of ourselves, we think. Now, I'm not talking about saving. I'm not talking about being wise and prudent. All that's biblical. I'm talking about that selfish impulse to hoard out of fear. But what Paul says next, how he ends this passage, sets us free from this fear. And it's our final motivation this morning. We can say it like this. Generous giving is backed by God's provision. Your gifts are insured. They're backed by God himself and his promise to provide. Look in verse 19. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Paul ends this paragraph with a wonderful and liberating promise, encouraging us to trust in our God who promises to provide for every single one of our needs. And if we sink our teeth down into this promise, we'll find it's the very truth that we need to liberate us from greed, from fear, from that that self-preservation that we so often feel. So let's quickly look at the details of this promise. Notice that the promise is comprehensive. Paul's God, he says, will fulfill our every need. Paul's not caveating this statement, even though there's a lot of questions that are probably going off in your mind right now. He doesn't caveat it. And this is the same Paul who sits there in prison, right? And he missed a couple meals, probably. He doesn't hold back or caveat in his statement. He wants the church to be confident in God's care and abundant provision. So do you realize that right now, God knows every single one of your truest needs? Do you know that He knows what you need most? And He knows way better than you know what you need. And do you know that He knows what you need way before you know what you need? He does. And He has pledged to meet those needs. And notice also, Paul says that God is beyond capable of meeting our needs. He has pledged to meet them out of his infinite account. Or as he says here, according to the riches, his riches in glory. As the eternal and self-existent creator, God owns all there is. He does not need our money. He is the wealthiest being that exists, if we could even say it that way. He is robed in regal glory with every resource at His disposal and He needs absolutely nothing. And no one can stop Him when He determines and ordains to provide. And He is good and loves His children fiercely. And it's out of this infinite storehouse that He promises to provide. But that raises a very important question, doesn't it? What is a need? 
And if you think about it for a little while, that answer is not as straightforward you know, as you might, you might think it is. Just for sake of illustration, a need in Cambodia is going to be very different from a need in Europe. Somebody in Cambodia is going to need clean water for survival. Somebody in Europe might need a new smartphone that's required for their job when they accidentally shattered the one they had and they can't afford a replacement. But they have to have it because this is required. But if you were to boil it down, you might say that a need is something that's necessary for survival, something like food, clothing, shelter. This word, this need word is used that way in the Bible. Kind of the irreducible things that we need to survive. But even that doesn't quite scratch the itch. What happens when, when God doesn't seem to provide even those things? What happens when his people are caught in the midst of some calamity, like a civil war, and they go hungry or they starve to death? Or they're thrown in prison, their homes are destroyed, and they die. Paul, of all people, knew that as God's children, we are not immune from suffering, from homelessness, from being deprived of what seems like the essentials of life, things like food, clothing. For Paul, as I thought about this, I think that he would define a need as something that is required for us to fulfill God's purpose for us. A need, I think, is something that's required for us to fulfill God's purpose for our lives. And what God is promising here is that He will provide those things we lack that hinder us from fulfilling His purposes. That's important to define it that way because many times we think we need certain things but God withholds them from us because He has a greater purpose. So to Him, the thing, the thing that we think we need, we really don't need. And sometimes He delays to meet a legitimate need so that we lean on Him in a more profound way than we did before. And sometimes, for His good and wise purposes, He may let His children starve to death. And even if we die, even if by the world's standards it seems we were not cared for, that temporary suffering, as horrid as it was, served His good purpose. Because that suffering took us by the hand and led us to our everlasting rest to our eternal joy, ushering us into the glorious presence of God, the great lover of our souls. And what appears to be a lack of provision leading to our death breaks open in the greatest provision imaginable in the new creation. That's because God has already provided for our greatest and most fundamental need. 
It's not food. It's not clothing. It's not a job transfer. It's not better health. As important as these things are to us and significant, He has provided for our alienation from Him. Our estrangement from our Creator due to our willful rebellion. He provides for our redemption in Christ. He has secured our eternal destiny in Him. We will pass through death and judgment unscathed to inherit eternal glory. And so Paul says here that God promises with no caveats to provide what we need in Christ. He is our God and He will care for us even temporally until we have fulfilled His purposes. You know what that does? It motivates us to be generous. It motivates us to live with an open hand. We have a Father who has already cared for us in the most fundamental way, and He has pledged to continue to take care of us until our time on earth is through. This frees us from fear. Fear of the unknown. And it frees us to trust the God who knows the future, to be generous in ways that please Him. He's pledged to take care of us and lead us safely home. What a motivation to be generous. What a motivation to praise God, right, for His provision. Paul can't contain himself anymore. And so this passage ends in doxology. Look at verse 20. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever Amen. And so when it comes to generosity, how do we cultivate it? We've got to know what's going on when we give. We become partners with the frontline workers and Christ's mission on earth moves forward. And that means the fruit is shared fruit. We'll be rewarded too on that final day because we gave. And this kind of open hand living pleases the Lord. It brings Him profound joy. And the same Lord that's now rejoicing in your giving is the Lord that's pledged Himself to provide for all your needs until your time on earth is through. Do you believe these things? I know you do. Because you are generous. This congregation is the, an incredibly generous congregation. So what I want these perspectives to do is to refresh you in your giving. To put wind in your sails as you think about all that is happening with your regular giving. But if you're new and you're not giving or, or there's something that's, that's going on, you you might be in a legitimate position not to give. You have to meet the needs of your family. That is crucial and a biblical principle. And you have to meet those needs first. Learning to work hard is biblical. It's good, but you work hard for a surplus so that you have something to share, says Paul in Ephesians 4. 
But if you truly understand these things, if you believe them by faith, you will be like the Philippians. Listen how Paul describes this church in 2 Corinthians. These Philippians who in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor or the privilege of taking part in the relief of the saints. They clearly believe these truths. And so, they joyfully gave. May we be encouraged and convicted by this church's example and go and do likewise. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you so much for the generosity that you've shown us in Christ. You are the great giver. No one can outgive you. You are a model for us in all things, and particularly in this area, and we are thankful for the spirit who you've given to us that motivates us, compels us to see, gives us eyes to see what's going on with the resources that you provide for us. We're thankful, I'm thankful for this church and the ways, the history of this place and how they've sacrificially given. And I'm excited to see the reward, the fruit that will accrue to their account for their faithfulness. And so, Father, I pray that you motivate us with your truth this afternoon as we meditate on these things plant them deep in our hearts, and continue to motivate us to be generous in the days ahead, no matter what you bring economically, so that we can continue your mission on earth to your great glory and praise. We ask it all in your Son's name.